Let me ask you to take either the pew copy of God's Word or your own and return to the book of Revelation, and I will pick up where Pastor Will left off in Revelation 21, starting at verse 22, and reading into chapter 22, verse 7. And the nature of this sermon is going to be something like the last one that I uh, preached concerning the second coming, in that there'll be a lot of scripture references, mostly from these two chapters. And so I would encourage you uh, to keep your a copy of God's Word open. I will um, I'll be making repeated references to various things. So. This is God's Word, Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord... The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And that ends God's, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. O Lord, no one knows the inadequacy of how to express these truths more than I this day. But would you who had these words written so many years ago through the Apostle John, Spirit of the living God, dwell with us richly today that the truths of heaven might also be written upon our hearts for all encouragement and joy and application. We make this our prayer 
in Jesus' name, the Lamb of God, who sits upon the throne of heaven. Amen. In my last sermon on the second coming, I quoted C.S. Lewis, who said, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. And so I thought, as I uncovered that quote and thinking about the sermon on the second coming, I thought this becomes something of a natural follow-up on that. And so that's what we want to do today in light of, of the second coming and the end of all things. I think it's great to, to dwell on these chapters concerning heaven. Now, we're going to only do so in a survey manner. Uh, it would, who knows how many sermons it would take to unpack all of the imagery here. We are dealing, obviously, in apocalyptic literature. Uh, there are ways of understanding that, of course, and I think what we say today will be in accord with what we have here. But you'll have to understand that, that we're going to be, uh, what, they, they call them today, what, helicopter parents or something, kind of hovering over their children. We're going to kind of be, heli- maybe I'm a helicopter preacher. We're just going to have to kind of hover over this and pick up some of the principal themes that are here. No way to be exhaustive. But, um, and, and I've been helped in a portion of this sermon by a friend of mine who who preached on heaven uh, in the summer of 2017. He had an opportunity uh, back in the church in Asheville, and so I want to say that I drew some information from his sermon. Chad Watkins, a great guy now down uh, in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Uh, Sorry for the rest of us, you know. Uh, No, just teasing. Um, Okay, so... Uh, in terms of an outline, listen for the C's, the C's as in Charlie. We're going to begin here. Uh, the first main point is the call to be heavenly minded, the call to be heavenly minded. In other words, you, we will never understand biblical religion unless we have a two world view of existence, of reality. Just, we, we could spend a great deal of time here, but let me just take one text from Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. Paul writing says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, here's the practical application, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That would just be one uh, imperative, just one statement that reminds us that, that reality is not uh, not just this world. We are not secularists. That's the very definition of being secular from the Latin term. This, in other words, they limit themselves to this world. We'll never understand 
uh, biblical religion with a purely secular view. It is two-world. We, we've already experienced that. And I'll just mention a couple of others and we'll move on. How were we taught to pray by our Lord? We've already done it. Our Father who art where? In heaven. And by the way, it goes on, doesn't it? Thy will be done on earth as where? As it is in heaven. It's just ingrained throughout. Matthew, you know, just taking a similar verse from that same Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 20, Jesus says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on the earth. Matthew's key way of speaking of this uh, era of fulfillment is, is when Jesus comes and John the Baptist came, they, they preached what? The kingdom of heaven has come. And so it's just, it, it is literally all through the Scriptures. And that's simply uh, the point I want to make here. There's this call to, to understand uh, that that is the essence of reality that we are to be thinking about heaven. And that's the application. And, and I can simply ask you one simple question. When you came here today, and as you, as you got to, to church, and, and you're here, and we're singing and doing things, how brightly does heaven and your prospect of going there burn in your heart? Was it... Kind of on the back burner, in the refrigerator, or free. Where was it in your consciousness? And so, we start with that. So, so that's the first point. The scriptures call us to be heavenly minded, and we're going to be speaking about that now. So, the main point two. That's the call. Main point two. The chief characteristics of heaven itself. The chief characteristics of heaven itself. I'm going to try to summarize this under three words. The first is the purity of heaven. The purity of heaven. And we're going to show this by what, first of all, is not in heaven, and then what is there. And so, what is not in heaven related specifically to the idea of purity? And here, if you have your scriptures open, note a few of the verses. There's verse starting in chapter 21, verse 4. Death shall be no more. That note alone is marvelous news, is it not? There is no death in heaven. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Verse 8 of chapter 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. They're, they're not in heaven. Those that will hold to that manner of life and not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. They will not be in heaven. Verse 27 
of chapter 21. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Back up in verse 21.1, it's interesting, uh, there it says, the sea was no more. And this is where our culture and where we are in life is radically different than how the people in Israel back in the first century and even back into the Old Testament thought about the sea, thinking about the Mediterranean Sea. They were scared of it. It was a, it was a source of chaos and danger and uh, and in Revelation, it's interesting, the beast arises out of the sea. And so it is a statement that that kind of evil and chaos and, and destruction is no more. And the application, you see, that fl- flows just from this one part of this is that there's nothing unclean. Cleanliness has been vital to biblical religion from the beginning of time. If you've read your Old Testament uh, much at all, you'll, it, it repeatedly in the Law of Moses speaks about, well, if you do this, you are unclean. And you need to do this to become clean again. There will be... I want us to, to try to understand the glory of these things. Think about a world... Where there's no jealousy, where there's no hypocrisy, there's no violence, there's no rape, there's no deception, no betrayals, no hatred, no sexual abuse and sexual misconduct, no theft, no gossip, no rudeness, no lies. And the list would just go on and on. This is hard to get our minds around. And yet, that is what is being spoken of here. Our world is literally filled with all manner of sins. Even within the church body, we fight and struggle. Even in our own individual hearts and lives, you know you struggle with, with temptations and, and the flesh. Not in heaven. Hallelujah. But sin is always with us here. And it's hard to grasp what is being said here. Today, sin is always corrupting and corroding and twisting and deforming everything. It's like the air we breathe. I remember this is some years ago, but it was my first time I had an occasion to fly uh, into Los Angeles, California. So I'd never been there before, and, you know, you pick up a conversation with some, you know, a person sitting there and talking, and he had done this many times, and, and it was a clear day uh, from where we were, from the perspective of the plane, and, and the pilot is descending and saying we're going to land, and I'm saying, I'm looking out the window, and saying, I wonder, you know, where is Los Angeles? It's a big place, and he pointed to a certain spot still, still further out, and it was quite obvious where Los Angeles was because of the enormous smog cloud that covered it. Now, I don't know. They may have cleaned things up then. Like I said, this is years ago. But my, you see the point? It, in this world, sin and corruption, it's twisted. It's, it's like the air we breathe. Not in heaven. It is pure. Not in heaven. Well, that... Um, uh, 
that speaks to things that are not in heaven. What is there in relation to purity? We're still on that point. What is there in relation to purity? Well, in our text today, verses 21, there, there are four references in the section that has been read today from 21.1 through 22.7. There are four references to the throne of God. The throne of God. Verse tw- we'll just take one. 21 verse 3. 21 verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. The purity of heaven. What is there? God is there. God is there. And if and since God is there, heaven must be a place of absolute purity and holiness. His holy angels are there. All materials of the city are pure. Pick up on this. In chapter 21, down at verse 10, I'll read verse 10 and 11. It says, the holy city, there it is, the very attribute is mentioned, for the whole Whole city, W-H-O-L-E, the whole city is holy. The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Pure materials, the purest can be imagined. John, as he tries to write in a way that communicates something of what he's seeing. Now, there's application at this point. Since this is true of heaven, we are to pursue purity, of course, now. This is what Jesus is doing in your life now, by the way. Filing away, reforming you, transforming you, seeking to assist you in putting sin to death its imperfections, recalibrating our affections for another world. Remember Hebrews 12, verse 14. That author writes and says, Strive for peace with everyone, and you would understand the verb repeated, and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. John picks up on this in the letter he wrote in 1 John chapter 3. He says, starting in verse 2, Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know this, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone, here's the practical application, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Well, that's the first trait of heaven, first characteristic, the second is the glory of heaven. Heaven is not only a place of absolute purity and holiness, but it is a place filled with glory. The Hebrew root idea behind the word glory is that of weightiness, heaviness, not, uh, not light and fluffy like meringue, but dense like a pound cake. Cecilia made some cakes for some, some of the officers of the church, and uh, one of them was a pound cake, you know, and she made some things. One of the guys picked it up and thought, 
Why? You know, this, this thing's heavy. And I said, why do you think they call it a pound cake? You know, it's, it's made out of all these dense ingredients, or at least it comes out that way. Not like meringue, but the idea is that of, of solidity, of, uh, of a reality that I think we want to think in terms of a reality that makes these kinds of things seem like the meringue. I'll always go back to C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, where the people get off the bus and they try to walk on the grass. And the grass hurts their feet because it's the grass of heaven. And it is more solid than they are. And that's, what, that's the idea. And so glory, uh, Vern Poitras, a theologian out of Westminster Seminary, says, Glory indicates the majesty, awesomeness, and beauty of God. The glory of God is the manifestation of who He is. Not only this attribute or that attribute or the other attribute, but the whole essence of who God is. He is altogether glorious and lovely. There is a song we I sang as a kid. He is altogether lovely. And that, that idea, and that's the truth. His glory is the radiance, the essence of who He is. How is His glory displayed? We see some of that. Uh, it was already a reference was made to the people that went on the ski trip. They had good weather and, and, and they looked out at the mountain, the snow and all of that and said, isn't creation glorious? And that's exactly the truth of Scripture. All creation speaks to God's glory. The tabernacle and the first temple were illustrations and, and experiences of the glory of God where when it was completed, the great Shekinah glory cloud came down and you couldn't go within the tabernacle because of the, the intensity of God coming to dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple. And of course, it is revealed in Jesus in His incarnation. John, same author in John, his Gospel, chapter 1, is where he says, We beheld His glory. But how much more will we see this in this place called heaven? How is it displayed in heaven? Now in chapter 22, verse 5, you get the importance of light in, this, in, in heaven. 22.5, just for one example, and night will be no more. There they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. The Lord God is there. The radiance of who God is will fill every nook and cranny of heaven. Chapter 21, verse 23 and 24 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And you just got... You just got to wonder at the next phrase. And its lamp, the lamp of heaven, is the Lamb. What an interesting idea. I think we get it. The Lamb is Jesus, but relating light and lamp to that, to Him. By its light will the nations walk. So it's this light of the glory of God Himself and of the city itself. Verses twenty, or excuse me, 
chapter 21, 10 and 11, 18 and 19 and 21, John writes, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. Clear as crystal. And the other verses speak about these materials and the streets being pure gold. Now picture, if you will, that kind of city constructed by absolutely pure reflective stones and the dwelling of God in His um, unhindered glorious nature there. There's light going everywhere. The glory of God is being reflected all through. Heaven is a place where every nook and cranny is filled with the glory of God. What is the application here? The only proper response to God's glory is worship. Arguably, the chief activity of heaven is worship. In chapter 22, verse 3, the occupants are of heaven. It is said of them, His servants will worship Him. And we can go through other sections of Revelation. But that will be the impact upon us. Worship. Well, the third word, so we've had purity or holiness. We've had this word glory. The third chief characteristic, and I struggled with this. I'm using... From my friend Chad Watkins, he chose the word the joy, the joy of heaven. And I say it's a bit of a struggle because you, I wanted to try to keep things somewhat summarized. Do I use joy? Do I try to use a Hebrew word like peace, shalom, this idea of completeness, of fulfillment, of, of wholeness? Do we use the word, is it a world of love like Jonathan Edwards? But I'll say with joy. And what I'm trying to communicate is that heaven is a deep, is an experience of a deep and abiding sense of delight and satisfaction that is not contingent upon our now shifting circumstances, but is rooted and grounded in the God of joy Himself. God is happy to be God. He is absolutely satisfied and joyful to be God. And heaven is where He certainly displays that. It is a place of joy. And we begin to think, when we read, and we've read it, first, chapter 21, verse 4, when it says that tears will be wiped away, and there will be no death, all the occasions of tears and sadness and loss are gone and over. Cancer is gone. Chronic illness and pain is gone. Hurtful relationships are gone. All of that. This idea of completeness and wholeness and joyful worship is there. So, we've seen the call to heavenly mindedness. And I've tried to help us understand something, try to get some kind of hanging points for all of this data about heaven. Purity, holiness, glory, joy. Let's go to main point three. 
The characteristics of the citizens of heaven. The characteristics of the citizens of heaven. And I'm going to be brief here. Uh, but, I've, but there are several things that came out. In other words, if you're going to heaven today, the roll is called up yonder and you're going to be there. What's going to be true of you? Chapter 21, verse 3. We are His people. The people of God will be true of us. They will be His people. There's a reason we'll be in heaven. In 21.6, 21.6 is the statement, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If you're going to heaven, it's because somewhere in your earthly sojourn, you realized you were lost. You were thirsty. You needed saving. And God provided. In verse 7 of 21, 21.7, this is an interesting one. It's the overcomers who are in heaven. Those who persevere. Those who didn't just walk an aisle and flippantly say something or, or sign a card, but those that today and tomorrow and those that are continuing, not by their works, but because they're truly believers. They're truly saved by Christ and dwelt by His Spirit. And so it is no contrast or no contradiction to describe those inhabitants of heaven as the overcomers. In the, chapter, in the chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches, regularly, Jesus responds to those churches to Him who overcomes and perseveres. Verse, um, chapter 21, the second half of verse 27, Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 3, we've already hinted at, not hinted at, mentioned true worshipers characterize the inhabitants of heaven. Chapter 22, verse 4. His name will be on their foreheads. Now, I don't think he's kind of has some type of stamp or whatever. I think this goes back to, uh, to uh, probably the high priest who had a turban, who had on the turban a, a metal piece in the front and center of that with the names of God's people on it. And I think uh, what, what he's basically saying is something we've said all along. To have God's name on us means we are His. We belong to Him. He cares for us. He knows us by name. Our names are engraved upon His heart. Another thing is true. This comes from chapter 7 of Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, but it's also mentioned in chapter 22, verse 14. But I like the way it's phrased in chapter 7. The inhabitants of heaven have had this happen to them. John says to the angel, Sir, you know the answer to this question. And the angel responds to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. In the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah for a Savior. The Lord Jesus who died shed His blood that we might have a righteousness that stands in heaven. 
I've got one more characteristic, but I made it point four because I wanted to accentuate this. this I'm calling it the central culminating reality and experience of heaven. Boy, that's a big title. Perhaps the most significant verse in the Bible is in what we read in five little words. Chapter 22, verse 4. Chapter 22, verse 4. Five words. They will see His face. They will see His face. Repeatedly in the Bible it's mentioned, no man can see me and live. Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, can't do it and kill you. And on it goes. Ever since Adam, but Adam and Eve before the fall had communion with God, they, they saw God. Ever since sin entered, no one sees God in this kind of bright display of glory of heaven. And we come to the final chapters. And what has God done but save a host of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and each one will be able to look upon God. To look upon God. We will stare into the face of God and live. We will be lost in wonder, love, and praise. We will not have to shrink back from Him, but we can respond in unending worship that is joyful and satisfied. The last thing, the challenge to enter heaven. Heaven is real. Heaven exists whether you believe it does or not. Heaven is available to you. Are you going there? How do you know you're going there? You'll not get there by your good works, by your monetary giving, by being nice. Your entrance into heaven can never rest on anything in yourself because everything about yourself and myself is tainted and impure and damaged and marred by sin. We've got to look outside ourselves for the entrance to heaven. And there's only one way. And I've already spoken of it. Faith in Christ and repentance from sin. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. He has never and will never turn away a single soul looking for mercy and forgiveness in Him. And that person will not only experience forgiveness of sin in this life, that person will be part of the family of God and enjoy heaven. These words twice in the section we read, 21.5 and 22.6, you have this statement near the front of what we started reading and at the end. The angel says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. 
we can stake our salvation on these things. We need to encourage one another. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Apostles' Creed ends rightly as I now end. I believe, I trust you do too, I believe in the life everlasting. Let's pray.